Welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrence. Concurrence is the leading antitrust database with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrence is also the largest network of antitrust experts with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. Joining me today to talk about the Digital Markets Act, I'm very pleased to welcome Carmelo Cianamo from the Copenhagen Business School. Thank you for joining us. Now, first of all, maybe you could outline what is the Digital Markets Act and and what stage we're at at the moment. Well, the Digital Markets Act uh, is basically the new proposal of uh, a law uh, to regulate uh, competition in the digital markets. as it, it is stated, is, uh, is an attempt to establish some principles on exante. That means that you know they apply before uh, things uh, take actions, rather than getting into classical antitrust uh, competition law, which is addressing the issues ex post once you know they they they've been raised and been brought forward by firms, which might take longer, and then you know it might be. Uh, not addressing the issue. So this is an attempt basically to prevent uh, bad things happening. We often hear this uh, idea that, you know, legislation and policy runs a long way behind the technology because it moves fast and and changes quickly. I mean, isn't there a risk that they're trying to regulate or or manage things they don't even know will exist in the future? I very much think, you know, this might be the problem. Uh, Of course, you know, when you establish um, some strict rules, right, uh, a bond like the DMA is trying to do, there is always a trade-off. So uh, the intention here is now to block some of the things that, you know, might be problematic and that have been seen in the current state of affairs. But the problem with this is that the digital economy is really moving fast and it's all about creating new business models. And that's where the DMA will lag behind, definitely, uh, in the future. In fact, what is my personal concern is that the kind of rules that are uh, imposed right now in the, uh, in the current draft of the DMA will actually trigger changes in the business model of the firms, uh, both the ones that are running uh, the, the platforms and those that you know, will be using the platforms as a consequence of uh, those obligations, as a way, you know, as a scapegoat, if you want. Well, just to set, really set the foundations, when we talk about digital markets, do we simply mean platforms? Well, I don't think so. Um, now, uh, here's the point. What is really a market when we attach to, to it, you know, the term digital? Uh, we need to be clear about that, right? So um, I think that, you know, if we with digital markets, we might intend, you know, new sales channels that are basically uh, primarily uh, dealt via digital tools, um, then, you know, the classical e-commerce or reseller might also be uh, a form of digital markets because it's a, an alternative sales channel to the, uh, you know, offline retail. What is now the concern with that? Uh, pretty much none, right? To the extent that, uh, of course, I mean, there is, there is, a, there is you know, the, the concern that you conduct the transactions on a remote instances. Therefore, you might be induced to buy something uh, that, you know, otherwise you would be more careful in evaluating when you are in a physical, there is, you know, the counterfeit issue. So there are some issues, right, when you, when you buy from a reseller online compared to, you know, uh, the physical store. 
those needs to be taken into account. But there is not much, you know, a change in the nature of competition, and and, uh, and therefore, you know, the current uh, sort of competition law um, is good enough to deal with this. Now, the concern with platform-based uh, digital markets is that you know they change the dynamics. They are completely different. And so uh, the current antitrust law. This is you know the argument, and I'm also uh, inclined you know uh, to actually subscribe with that. Um, is that is not sufficient because there are new issues coming up, and these new issues are related to uh, the central role that the, the the firms governing the platforms may have in directing some of the transactions into you know one area instead of another, and this is the primary the primary concern that is on the foundation also the DMA. Well, this is where we're getting into what are the, the so-called gatekeepers. It's, I suppose, when those platforms act as the middleman between the, the end company and the, and the end user. So explain what we mean by digital gatekeepers. Why is there such concern at the moment? Just also to, to address the issue that there's often perceived to be an anti-Americanism about this because it's generally perceived that these big gatekeepers are American companies. Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, I, I, I might not want to go into uh, the geopolitical uh, uh, space here, but but I do believe that, of course. I mean, this is law drafting, and there are interests interest you know at stake that need to be taken, and it's legitimate, right? And and politician, that's their job. They have to take into account you know what are the interests at stake, and then strike a balance. Now, I do want to submit that, you know, there are important uh, European platforms. Granted, they are the, not the one leading the world at the moment, but, you know, there is hope. And uh, I see what's going on, for instance, in the automotive industry with, you know, uh, big European companies taking the lead and embracing this digital, uh, you know, platform business model. So, you know, uh, FinTech is another one. So there is, a, there is you know, uh, active space and even in the B2B uh, insurance. So there is a lot of things going on in Europe under the scene. And, and so hopefully in the future, we will see, you know, some of these big platforms emerging. Now to your questions of gatekeeper, what is really gatekeeper? Now the gatekeeper term has been introduced as a way, uh, I believe, right, to give a negative connotation here to the, uh, to the role of the, the hub, central role of the platform uh, firm. But gatekeeping uh, as a practice is in fact the way that this business model works. Uh, let me explain. So the market that emerges around the platform is created by the platform, right? So that's the difference in the nature. Why it is created? Well, it, because it fundamentally it address uh, you know, a number of problems of coordination between disconnected actors on the seller and you know, provider side of the service and disconnected actors on the demand side, right? So the users. If we think of Airbnb or Uber is the quintessential example of how you know, this model can work simply because there is a hub firm that you know, controls and coordinates these externalities. What are these externalities that we talk about? Well, to start with, you know, it's the information asymmetry. When you have to rent a, a house that is you know, remotely in, in some part of the world, of course, you don't know, right? So you have to check. So you need a middleman there that guarantees that the transactions will be performed according to the terms. That's what platforms do. And that's why today we're not scared to getting into some you know, stranger's house and stranger's car. Um, it, when it comes to innovations, so to products that you know, they need to come together, in order to provide a value proposition to us, and I'm speaking, for instance, of apps and you know and phone, again, there needs to be somebody that coordinates where this innovation is and the way this innovation space happens. 
and obviously the one that have control on the platforms, right? Uh, they sort of dictate uh, the, the technology evolution. Um, so this is obviously, uh, you know, part of the role of the platforms. Now, what is the issue with this is that the DMA has a heavy focus on size, right? So while it depicts basically, well, it, it identifies a number of uh, so-called core platform services. So what, you know, are the, 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 the essential uh, uh, functions that the platform performs as, you know, a number of them as, uh, you know, the one be more problematic. Uh, there is a long list there. But then it goes to the size, and the size is not the size of the platform per se, right? So that will basically uh, remind us of how dominant is a particular platform in, you know, to users. But it's the size of the firm undertaking the platform, the, 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 the firm, you know, controlling the platform. So we get to a sort of a paradox here that a company like Apple, which is, you know, big by turnover size and, and users, but is rather small in terms, for instance, of the actual platform, because that's, you know, around the 14, 15% market share with the mobile OS, right? It enters into uh, the destination as a gatekeeper because it's, you know, it's basically defined as a central uh, gateway to the market, right? So that uh, they give uh, basically access to the market. I think, you know, that this is, uh, probably the wrong focus because if it, the problem is with the model per se that you know it is you know the central firm controlling the directions right of value within uh, the platform well we have this problem with big as well as small platforms so if with the problem with, with some of the articles listed in in the article 5 of the dma right with for instance given consent of uh, the use of your data every time that the platform you know, uh, uh, repurpose this data, right? And so they might use it for other for other purposes. Now it is, you know, an obligation according to the Article Five A that every time that the platforms wants to do that, right? Um, I have to give consent as a user. If this is a fundamental problem of fairness and transparency and you know data protection, it's a general principle, right? So we agree with that. So why should it should be that this general principle is only implemented by the big, you know, platforms, by the big firms, not even the big platforms, but the big firms controlling platforms, right? Uh, and now we can, we can again, we can, we, we can discuss, for instance, about Amazon is a big firm controlling, you know, uh, a significant platform, but again, the platform doesn't, you know, control the entire e-commerce space. So why is it that when I contract in an e-commerce e reseller, right? I mean, uh, I, you know, that reseller is not obliged to treat my data at the same way as, you know, the big firm operating the platform is. And this, I believe, will distort competition in, in, in significant unintended ways, right? And one way could be that as a consumer, I will tend to have now under the DMA more trust in the big players, right? Such as Google, Apple, Facebook, et cetera, because I know that they cannot use the data at their will because of the DMA, but I will not trust the small uh, platforms, companies, or other online reseller because you know they are not obliged to, by the same standard. So this is you know one aspect, for instance, that is not properly dealt or taken into account in the DMA, and I think you know this might actually bring you know some unintended consequence. But isn't the issue here not necessarily? You give the example there of Uber and Airbnb, who have to a large degree, stayed within their lane, as it were. The problem is sometimes when the platforms expand into other areas or other markets, 
where they are then offering themselves products or services that compete with those companies that they are then offering those products and services via their platform. So for example, Google, that's just to say, you know, because we know who we're talking about here, also offer services that compete with the same services that they offer a platform to. I mean, presumably that is why the focus is on these big companies because they can more easily do that than your small startup, which has got a single vision or a single proposal to bring to market. Right, indeed. Uh, you know, and there is this article on self, so-called self-preferencing, right, where the platform might actually treat its own products more uh, with, you know, some preferential uh, attention, right, compare. Well, they do, right? Um, now, why are they doing that? So that's the question, right? Um, so are they doing that because they want to exploit, uh, exploit you know, just uh, uh, their market power for, to capture, you know, greater value? Probably, yes, right? I mean, they want to capture value, but they're doing that in striking a balance. So let's not forget that the, that the business model of the platforms is always, you know, coordinating users on the different sides. So if you lose the customer on one end, right, you cannot do any more than exploitation. So there needs to be some value that is left to the customer. And indeed, this is what's happening, you know, with the platforms, that the customer is extremely happy. And that's also a source of concern today, right? Because I mean, precisely because they make the customer more happy, right? The problem is that, yes, but you know, the, uh, the other business user might be hard from that uh, and the customer might end up being happy. So with this fairness at the end of the day, right? We need to bring this into the picture. We need to strike a balance between the different interests at stake here, between the consumer consumers on one hand and the business provider on the other hand. Now in traditional competition, you know, uh, antitrust law, it will be the consumer, the one to be, you know, the center as, as an object, right? So the final, the final end. And therefore, anytime that you, you know, you enhance value for the consumer, we will say, well, there is, you know, not a much of a problem in there because there are so-called efficiency gains. Now, when you bring in a product, um, the platform itself, right? There is a some differentiation. So they bring basically competition in, uh, on the pressure in the platform itself. And usually they go after the products that they, are, they have, you know, high profitability, right? Where there is, you know, scope to squeeze some of those, you know, extra margins in there and provide, you know, more, uh, more value to the customer. That, that basically what's happening, particularly with the reseller or marketplaces platforms. And therefore, you know, there is also this efficiency gains to be, to be taken into account. Now, the problem is not with the dual mode if they sell, right, the products, because that is positive. It stimulates, you know, competition and differentiation within the platform. But the problem is when the platforms use its own, right, regulating power of the market to steer attention only to its own products, right, at the expense of other choices, right? So it needs to be properly displayed that there are other choices there so that this, this needs to be treated equal, equally, right? So this is where the focus should be, not on banning uh, the ability of the platform to offer its own products. And this is particularly true and important when we speak of platforms that, you know, have innovation or complementary innovation as their center core, like, for instance, the mo mobile apps and softwares and others, because in that case, Putting you know, their own product is a way, again, to coordinate the market, is a way to attract, in fact, developers to that area uh, and consumers to that area because it's probably a signal by the platform that that's where the investment of the technology is. That's where you know, they want to take you know, the next technology evolution. 
just to mention, you know, every time that Apple comes with a new update of the operating system, there are, of course, new features that get into the phone. And those new features are intended to, you know, lead the new technological trajectory as a way for Apple to redirect the innovation uh, incentives and focus to that area is also a way to put their own products to showcase, uh, you know, uh, some of these elements and features and stop other areas where, you know, if you want, if you have a, an, another yet app, you know, a copycat app, it won't add much value. So they want basically to stop, you know, invest, uh, developers to invest in that area and redirect, you know, their focus towards what they think uh, is a more valuable, uh, you know, uh, direction. Well, let's talk about the the other laws that sort of dovetail, if you like, with the Digital Markets Act. I mean, we've also got a Digital Services Act being proposed, and there is, of course, the General Data Protection Regulation, uh, which also governs the large data sets, and which has already been in place for three years, just recently. You talk a little bit about unintended consequences, and this is something we hear with relation to the GDPR quite a lot. Obviously, that's not a competition area. That's more about con- consumer protection and fundamental rights. But do you think that is down to poor enforcement or poor levels of enforcement or, or, or sort of non-horizontal enforcement across different countries? I do believe we have you know, a huge problem in this. Um, the problem, well, so, so there are three levels of problems. The first problem is what you just mentioned. There is a lack of coordination uh, at the international level. Now, this brings basically or pushes some some you know some countries or uh, to uh, sort of competition uh, on what should be you know fundamental and ag- agreement upon you know uh, fundamental principles right uh, and, and rights that we have we should converge on this and we should avoid you know uh, undermining each other's uh, rights right and, and principle of civilization and democracy uh, uh, you know on the basis basically of uh, cheap you know competition on who gets you know a more uh, uh, business friendly environment you know for these companies and now you know when it comes to some of this discussion you hear the proponents right and the uh, that that fundamentally know that they're right and that I agree that this is right uh, a statement of a principle we need to protect, you know, our rights, we need to protect democracy, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are others, right? And uh, will basically come and say, yes, but then, you know, uh, Europe will become even more insignificant compared to uh, China and the US where, you know, this is not a problem. Companies will, will, you know, will find basically a good business environment and investors will then, you know, bring their money there. I agree. I mean, that's what is going to happen. You know, money follows uh, returns and the returns are higher when, you know, firms are allowed to experiment more and, and do more with it. Is this now good of enough a reason for Europe, right, to uh, give up, right, on this, on this rights protection, on establishing principles? I don't think so. I think to the contrary, that Europe has, you know, might have a role, if any, between the two, in reestablishing what democracy is or should be and what the principles are. Now, so on the principle level, I completely agree, right? And this is a fight and we need to keep with the fight. Now, again, if we don't coordinate, if we don't bring this fight, and then if we don't you know, bring the other uh, superpowers to converge on this principle, we will have a business problem. You know that business problem, you know, is going to have backlash, and there will be, you know, strong trade-offs. They need to be acknowledged. So, if we are convinced of moving forward, accepting, 
you know, some of these unintended consequences, then fine. You know, we know what the trade-offs are and we stand, you know, for our own ideas and, uh, and, and principles, but it should be stated, right? Uh, we cannot just say, well, you know, this is a right, this is a principle, and then forget, right? I mean, that this is going to hurt, you know, some of the small companies and therefore we will have, you know, repercussions in terms of uh, what can be done or not. So there is basically, you know, the second fundamental problem that, you know, trade-offs needs to be clearly spelled out and if possible, right, there needs to be a, a balance in there. And the balance means that we have to go to the first problem and then converge across, you know, the different countries on something that we uh, think, you know, is fundamental and universal, right? And they should be applied everywhere. The third problem is that if we speak of competition and if GDPR, I know that GDPR is not about competition, but, you know, when we, when we get to the DSA and then, you know, there is a relation to the DMA. And then if the DMA, we talk about, you know, concentrations, monopolizations and all these uh, issues, you know, this is not an aspect we should forget in the DSA. Now, sort of the GDPR, there are a number of articles out there that shows, you know, how this GDPR implementation and the compliance costs that firms have for GDPR have just favored the big companies, you know, and they have now, as a result, we have concentration that goes up in a number of, you know, sub-segments of the markets, particularly in the advertisement space, Again, for what I said before, because people trust more the big companies. So you don't know what the small company is, and therefore, you know, uh, they also have greater compliances. They, they are the one you know, to lose more out of this. Is this a cost that we are willing to pay? Probably this is not the, this is not the right question. The question is, how do we make sure that it is not too costly for small companies to comply with GDPR? So this is, I'm not saying... Let's get you know rid of the GDPR because the small companies get hard and we have you know higher concentration. But let's acknowledge that there is a problem there and we need to fix this problem if we want to make you know GDPR work. And stating the principle in the law is not enough. With regard to the GDPR, and I guess we're talking about it because we want to avoid the same issues coming up with the DMA. Isn't there a chilling effect? Because I often hear smaller companies saying, oh. We can't do this because of GDPR. And it's a lack of understanding of the GDPR. In fact, the GDPR wouldn't prevent them doing that. But there's a chilling effect that they're afraid of overstepping the mark because of the huge penalties that they're scared they would incur or indeed the reputational damage they would incur if they did overstep it. Do you think that is an issue worth acknowledging that there's just a poor understanding of the law in some cases? Well, I, you know, I, I don't think that the problem is, you know, that you don't want to step into it. Uh, I simply think that, you know, of course, as a company, right? So uh, your reputation is always at stake, right? And it constrains what you can do, right? Uh, but, you know, it can constrain in good ways. Uh, that's, you know, what the law is intended to do, right? So make sure that you deal, you know, with the data of your users and your customers in a proper way. But it can constrain in very bad way. So some organizations, particularly the one that, you know, they're not good at managing data, they don't know how to deal with this. They don't know, you know, how to implement the new infrastructures to every time, you know, uh, uh, reuse or, 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 you know, or go and collect, you know, the consent by, by the users. And here's where the asymmetries can, comes into play, where, you know, the big companies they have resources and infrastructures for doing that. So they can repeatedly go to the customer, you know, nudge, nudge the customer basically to give the consent. While the small companies, it's, it's simply, you know, 
it's not where they had is, is not where the operations are, is not where their resources, you know, are deployed for. And that's where, you know, the problem, uh, the problem is. So they need to rely on somebody else and they will, you know, more heavily rely on somebody else to, to counter, uh, you know, to counteract some of these problems. Well, a final question then um, in relation to the DMA. I suppose you could say that even a good law badly implemented or poorly enforced is going to end up having unintended consequences. But what would you like to see change in the current draft? And then, assuming you get those changes, what then would you like to see in terms of implementation and enforcement? Well, glad you asked the question because I think you know that that should be you know uh, part of the conversation and the debate. Uh, it's it's more on the how, right? Um, we are now at the stage where you know we're discussing or debating uh, should we or whether, but it's on the how, right? And I've just submitted you know my uh, recommendations to the to the European Parliament, the committee that is uh, steering you know the the law. And what I believe and what I suggested is that there needs to be more a principle-based um, uh, ruling. So it is okay to establish some elements or some, you know, as, as a possible practice that are presumed to be uh, uh, harmful, okay? But there needs to be a, a principle that guides that. And then the principle should give the opportunity to the company to defend itself, to raise, you know, uh, the case and bring data and information and knowledge about, you know, how they think that practice is not harmful, but is in fact beneficial to the users, to the business users, or, you know, to the uh, collective uh, in general. Now, if we establish the principles in the law, rather than, you know, a list of things that are bonds or, or provisions, right? So basically, it, we revert the logic, we establish general principles, and we link those articles to those principles as a presumptions of violation of those principles. What we're doing, we're forcing companies to release knowledge to the people that do not have this knowledge, which are the enforcers. And that's a better way, I believe, also to guarantee enforcement, because then, uh, you know, you will get basically the relevant information. Sure, the tractors will say, oh, there is, a, there is a problem here of regulatory capture so that, you know, they will feed you with the information, you know, they want you to have. Um, yeah, sure. But, you know, this is better than, uh, than what it is right now. Right now is, well, you know, you will not have the information. You will have a very limited competences. There isn't enough that is established now in the current DMA, um, you know, as for, for instance, a specialized unit that you know takes a, a, onto this, so there will be a, a huge imbalance in terms of uh, knowledge, right, between the big companies and and the enforcers. Now, the DMA thinks of solving this problem by just stating the bonds, and therefore said it's fixed, right? I mean, I said there you cannot do it, and you know we don't have to prove. That's it. But the companies will fight back because you know many of those articles have. Have basically uh, some ambiguity into it, right? So fairness. What is fair? You know, they will fight back and uh, go in court. So uh, what do you do then? And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much to Carmelo Chenamo for joining me to talk about the Digital Markets Act. But do stay with us at Concurrence for another Antitrust Code podcast coming soon. You listened to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrence. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrence website where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter at Competition Laws 
and join the Concurrence Group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast.